If you have a Bible, could you take it and turn to the book of Acts? Acts chapter 12, as we continue our study through the book of Acts. Acts 12, and we'll be in all but one of the verses here in this chapter. We'll stop at verse 24. Uh, have you ever been playing a game and things are going really well? Uh, everything that you that you want, to, I'm thinking more like board games. Maybe you went to like physical outdoor games. I'm thinking like a board game or chess or something like that. But things are going well. Everything that you want to happen is is happening. You're getting all the good cards. You're getting all the right tiles, if that's what it is, or you're having all the best rolls of the dice, and things are just lining up perfectly, and you know that you're going to win until suddenly someone at the table starts to make a move or, or lay a card, and it looks like all of your great plans are about to, to fall apart. You thought you were going to win, and then suddenly it looks like, oh no, everything is, is, is going downhill. At the end of, of Acts 11, it looks like all of the pieces are falling into place for God uh, to advance the gospel even further in the world. The stage is being set for God's kingdom to spread, for his word to increase. Saul, who Jesus had called as the apostle to the Gentiles, has been converted. Cornelius, a, a key Gentile from Caesarea, has been converted. And Peter, the representative of the church in Jerusalem, has been converted to believe that the door of faith has been opened to the Gentiles. And then last week we heard about this church in Antioch where the gospel quickly took root and flourished in this multicultural metropolitan city. Things are, are moving forward. But as the kingdom of God expands, the kingdoms of this world seek to contain it and even to snuff it out. And this was not true only for the early church, but it is something that happens everywhere that Christianity arrives. And so chapter 12 of the book of Acts is needed for every Christian in every generation in every part of the world so that we can see what happens when the world and its desires steps into the ring with the church. Because not surprisingly, the, the kingdom of this world appears to be the favorite in a boxing match with the church. And often in our own lives and in our world, the forces of darkness and the opponents of the world and of the flesh and of the devil, they, they drain our courage, they sap our faith, and we begin to believe that we are done for. But Acts 12 is sort of in our corner, if you will, and Acts 12 yells out and calls to us, never doubt the supernatural power of God's ways and word. When it looks like everything's falling apart, Acts 12 comes to us and says, never doubt the supernatural power of God's ways and his word. In the face of sin that you can never seem to shake, never doubt the supernatural power of God's ways and God's word. When you face discouragement or you face depression or downheartedness or doubt, Never doubt the supernatural power of God's ways and God's word. When you think about people that you love who seem like they're never going to change, that they'll never bow their knee to Jesus, never doubt the supernatural power of God's ways and God's word. When you face enemies that, that threaten your mind and your heart and your soul and even your physical body, never doubt the supernatural power of God's ways and God's word.
when your church doesn't have a place to call its own and you're not sure what the next step is, never doubt the supernatural power of God's ways and God's word. And when you look at the world around us and you imagine that darkness is going to win in the end, never doubt the supernatural power of God's ways and God's word. No matter how strong or how intimidating or how powerful our enemy seems, Acts 12 tells us that we should never doubt the supernatural power of God's ways and God's word. But is that right? I want us to read Acts 12, 1 to 24 and see if it has that kind of power to encourage us in all of these situations and more. And as we read, I want you to just take note of a few things that might help you kind of follow what's happening here. Um, Just structure-wise, you should note the way that Herod's actions sort of form bookends for this, uh, this passage with the story of Peter's release from prison sandwiched in between. So we begin with Herod and we end with Herod and Peter's escape from prison is escape. Release from prison is is right in the middle there. Uh, Second, within that structure, think about the contrast between natural powers and supernatural powers, between the the powers of of this, this world and the power of God. And then finally, as I read it, I want you to just enjoy the story. Uh, this is a great story. Uh, consider the, the, the wonderful, uh, the, the wonder of it. Consider the humor in it. Uh, consider the great way that Luke tells this story. Um, so enjoy the story in the midst of trying to understand what it means. So let's read Acts 12. I'll start in verse 1 and go to 24. God's word says, About that time Herod the king laid violent hands on some who belonged to the church. He killed James, the brother of John, with the sword, and when he saw that it pleased the Jews, he proceeded to arrest Peter also. This was during the days of unleavened bread. And when he had seized him, he put him in prison, delivering him over to four squads of soldiers to guard him, intending after the Passover to bring him out to the people. So Peter was kept in prison, but earnest prayer for him was made to God by the church. Now, when Herod was about to bring him out, on that very night, Peter was sleeping between two soldiers bound with two chains and sentries before the door were guarding the prison. And behold, an angel of the Lord stood next to him and a light shone into the cell. He struck Peter on the side and woke him saying, get up quickly. And the chains fell off his hands. And the angel said to him, dress yourself and put on your sandals. And he did so. And he said to him, wrap your cloak around you and follow me. And he went out and followed him. He did not know that what was being done by the angel was real, but thought he was seeing a vision. When they had passed the first and the second guard, they came to the iron gate leading into the city. It opened for them of its own accord. And they went out and went along one street and immediately the angel left him. When Peter came to himself, he said, now I am sure that the Lord has sent his angel and rescued me from the hand of Herod and from all that the Jewish people were expecting. When he realized this, he went to the house of Mary, the mother of John, whose other name was Mark, where many were gathered together and were praying. And when he knocked at the door of the gateway, a servant girl named Rhoda came to answer. Recognizing Peter's voice, in her joy, she did not open the gate, but ran in and reported that Peter was standing at the gate. They said to her, you are out of your mind. But she kept insisting that it was so. And they kept saying, it is his angel. 
But Peter continued knocking, and when they opened, they saw him and were amazed. But motioning to them with his hand to be silent, he described to them how the Lord had brought him out of the prison. And he said, tell these things to James and to the brothers. Then he departed and went to another place. Now when day came, there was no little disturbance among the soldiers over what had become of Peter. And after Herod searched for him and did not find him, he examined the sentries and ordered that they should be put to death. Then he went down from Judea to Caesarea and spent time there. Now, Herod was angry with the people of Tyre and Sidon. And they came to him with one accord. And having persuaded Blastus, the king's chamberlain, they asked for peace because their country depended on the king's country for food. On an appointed day, Herod put on his royal robes took his seat upon the throne and delivered an oration to them. And the people were shouting, the voice of a God and not of a man. Immediately an angel of the Lord struck him down because he did not give God the glory. And he was eaten by worms and breathed his last. But the word of God increased and multiplied. Never doubt, um, never doubt the supernatural power of God's ways and his word. As Luke encourages us to do this, he fills in some of the gaps within that statement with four truths that I think we can draw from this wonderful story. So with that big idea of never doubting the supernatural power of God's ways and word, let's think about these, these four truths that we can sort of add on to bolster that. And the first is this, there is mystery in God's ways. There is mystery in God's ways. As Luke opens the story, he, he introduces us to King Herod. Uh, as uh, Keith was trying to help us, and I'll try to help us understand which Herod this is. This, this King Herod is grandson to Herod the Great. Uh, that's the one who killed all of the children two years old and younger after the birth of Jesus. Uh, he is the nephew of Herod Antipas, the one who had killed John the Baptist that we read about. And the more we learn about this Herod here in Acts 12, the more we realize that the apple doesn't fall too far from the, the family tree. Um, like the Herods before him, this King Herod was motivated to do terrible things because of his pride and because of his desire to please other people. This is the evil, self-centered, egotistical, insecure power that is offered by the world. It's filled with pride and it's easily swayed by peer pressure. We see this in, in Herod first in that he lays hands on James, the brother of John, one of the disciples of Jesus. You remember the, the sons of thunder? And he takes James and he beheads him. And we're not told why he arrested and killed James, but it was surely because he and Christianity opposed Herod's power. They were a threat. If Christianity continued to cause issues within the empire, then Herod could be held responsible. And so he thought that maybe by killing a leader of the church that this could be advantageous. And to his surprise and his delight probably, he found that killing James not only snuffed out one of the leaders in the church, but it made him popular. The Jews in his district were pleased at what he did. So what does he do? He arrests Peter. 
and intends to kill him. But consider the hypocrisy of this guy. He arrests Peter and he fully intends to kill him, but he's not going to do it until after the Passover because that kind of a trial and an execution would not be looked on as a positive thing during feast days because, you know, image is everything. And you don't want to be killing someone at an inappropriate time. As we look at the evil of of this man and his evil acts, and then we think about the beheading of James and the arrest of Peter, we could have sort of a range of emotions in response. Uh, We might think about the great odds that the church was against, and we might wonder how it could ever have had a chance to grow. They were this, this small group rejected by the religious establishment and now being murdered by political powers. How could they survive? We might also be a little bit confused and maybe a little bit angry, wondering how could God allow this to happen? How could he let Herod have his way? And given that we know that Peter is going to be released from prison, we might wonder why God didn't do the same thing for James. Why did James get beheaded? In the midst of these emotions, we're called to embrace that while we should never doubt the supernatural power of God's ways and his word, we have to remember that there is mystery in God's ways. And while we may not know why he does what he does at times, we know that that he is always in control. In fact, the death of James, while horrible, is not completely surprising, is it? Jesus himself told James and John that they would drink the cup that he drank, if you remember that, that they too would die for their faith. So we know that God wasn't asleep for the prayers that the church surely made for James, but then awake for the prayers that were made on the behalf of Peter. God wasn't off the throne when Herod was placed on the throne. God knew who Herod was and he knew what he would do. And God even allowed him to have the power that he wielded to do those things. Daniel 2.21 tells us that God is the one who sets up kings. And as we'll soon see, he's also the one who brings them down. But knowing all of this, knowing that God is in control doesn't solve the mystery of God's ways. And to be honest, that's okay. It doesn't have to solve the mystery. In some ways, we live within the mystery of God's will and God's ways. Because we can trust him to do what's right, even if we don't understand what he's doing, even if we don't understand why he's doing it. We can, we can seek as best we can to know how God can use evil for good, but we can also trust his wisdom. We can trust his goodness. We can trust his sovereignty, even when the reasons for his ways remain hidden. So even in the, the mysteries of providence, we should never doubt the supernatural power of God's ways and God's word. So the scene here then is set for this clash of kingdoms um, up through verse five, the, the power of Herod and the, the power of God have been sort of brought into the ring. And he, Luke shows us that the, the church definitely looks like the underdog in this, in this match. As Peter's placed in prison, Luke is, is, goes at pains to highlight the amount of security that surrounded Peter. There's four squads of soldiers, not to mention all of the gates that we're going to read about later. And in the face of all this steel and iron, the church is said to be praying. Thoughts and prayers, right? That's what we see in our day and age. That's the the only weapon that we have sometimes. John Stott summarizes it like this. 
Here then were two communities, the world and the church, arrayed against one another, each wielding an appropriate weapon. On the one side was the authority of Herod, the power of the sword, and the security of the prison. On the other side, the church turned to prayer, which is the only power which the powerless possess. Thinking about that weapon that we, the powerless, wield, I think we're encouraged by this story with a second truth, that there, there is consistently surprising power in prayer. There is consistently surprising power in prayer. I say consistently surprising because no matter how often we're surprised, we usually are surprised again later on by the power of prayer. The church was praying. They were earnestly praying. They were all night praying. They were devoted to praying and they were praying to God. Of course, we would assume that the church was praying to God, right? But Luke makes that explicit in verse five that they were praying to God as if to say Herod had had guards, but the church had God. And it's, it's those prayers to God that are connected to all that happens in the following verses. Don't, don't doubt the fact that Luke is saying the church prayed and then this is what happened. That's the point of the prayers. That the, the fact that the church prayed leads to everything that follows. There is surprising power in prayer. Surely the, the church had deep faith in this hour, but we can also be sure that there was some fear especially on this particular night that's mentioned because it's the last night that Peter is scheduled to be in prison. He's supposed to check out the following morning and that's because Herod is going to kill him the following morning. As I think about that, it makes me think that sometimes God lets us feel our backs up against the wall or that we have nowhere else to turn but to him or that time is running out so that we will pray, so that we'll gather the church together and earnestly pray to him, trusting his love, trusting his power. Sometimes in the mystery of his ways, God gets us to a place of seeing that we can do nothing but trust him so that when we do trust him and when he answers us and when he acts, we have nothing else to say except that was God. God alone gets the glory for this because there was no other way out. And when you get to that kind of place in life, just like the church was. They had no other hope but to pray. When you get to that kind of a place, don't complain. Cry out to God and don't curse God. It's an opportunity to trust God in difficulty. While the church was praying, Peter was sleeping. (laughs) Like uh, Jesus asleep in the the ship in the midst of the, the storm. We see Peter sawing logs with soldiers on either side of him, two chains holding him tight, guards at the gates, an appointment with death in the morning. Isaiah 26, 3 says, you keep him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on you because he trusts in you. Think about Peter when I read that. In the boat or in the prison or whatever place you're tempted to panic, if we know that God is with us and we know that God is in control, then we can rest. Psalm 127.2 tells us that God gives his beloved rest. And God can give you rest no matter what's coming in the morning. In fact, I wonder if Peter's resting may have been an answer 
to the prayers of the church. I can almost hear the church praying, Lord, give Peter peace. Let his faith in you be so strong that he's even able to sleep in prison. Of course, Peter's sleep didn't last all night because in the middle of the night, an angel woke him up. Uh, A supernatural messenger from God appears in the prison, pokes Peter in the side and tells him to get up. He told him to get up quickly and he did. He told the, the chains to fall off and they did. He told Peter to get dressed and put his sandals on and he did. He told him to put on his cloak and he did. Parents, maybe you can relate to this angel. Peter is in some sort of a, a fog, it would seem. He's not sure if he's dreaming or he's awake. And he's like you trying to get your kids up and get them ready for school uh, before the sun has risen. Put your clothes on, put your shoes on. Yes, you need a jacket. Don't forget your lunch. We gotta go. And once he's dressed, the angel and, and Peter simply walk past the guards and then the gate sort of listens to the angel and opens up. And after a walk down a certain street, the angel leaves Peter, and it's only then that he realizes that he wasn't dreaming. He was, he was awake the whole time. And now he's free. And he knew exactly where to go, which was the house of, of Mary, John Mark's mother. This could be the same house where the church had been praying at the beginning of the book of Acts. Um, we're not sure. It could be the same house with this large upper room. But whatever house it is, Peter knew that the church would be there, and he knew that they would be praying. And so he gets to the gate of that house. He knocks He calls out Rhoda, a servant girl, hears him. And in her excitement, she doesn't open the door, but she just runs to tell everyone that that Peter's here. I think the fact that Rhoda is mentioned here by name, I just wonder if if Luke talked to Rhoda, uh, if she's one of the eyewitnesses that Luke's always talking about. But whether that's true or not, surely he spoke to someone who was there because the details in this story are, are just great. Peter is is sort of banging at the gate, calling out, probably wishing that the angel had stuck around just, you know, here's one more gate you could have opened up for me. Uh, And Rhoda's inside trying to convince everyone that God has really answered their prayer. No, I'm not out of my mind. No, it's not his angel. It's really him. And finally, everyone goes to the door. And now they're so excited that Peter has to wave his hands and tell them to be quiet, probably so that he can talk to them and explain what happened, but also so that they don't cause such a disturbance that everyone comes and he gets thrown back in prison. He tells them uh, to tell James, the Lord's brother, and to tell all the apostles these things, and then he leaves. He's free. A brief side note, here's a late night prayer meeting held by church members, and none of the apostles were there. That's not an indictment on the apostles, but rather it's an encouragement to all of us as fellow spirit and dwelt followers of Jesus, that you don't need an elder or a church leader to organize or even attend a prayer meeting for it to be powerful. Of course, the real point is the consistently surprising power of prayer and the way that that God works through the prayers of his people to show the might of his kingdom. Prayer is a gift from God that never ceases to amaze us. These members of the early church had seen God do some amazing things in response to prayer. And yet even they are surprised at how consistently and constantly God responded in amazing ways to the prayers of his people. And we too, if we would be devoted to earnest prayer to God, we would be amazed at the way he works. Brothers and sisters, we should be challenged by this passage to pray earnestly. 
to put our backs into it, as it were, to be willing to stay up all night, to pray without ceasing. You know, maybe even God would prompt you by His Spirit to organize a time to pray together with others, to pray all night. And you don't even have to invite me if you don't want to. (laughs) We're also challenged to bring bold, God-sized requests to the Father. To ask God to do things that only God can do. God released Peter from prison. Within those big requests, we trust the mystery of God's will, but we also believe that he can do exceedingly and abundantly more than all that we could ask or think. And not just big prayers, but maybe specific prayers, really specific prayers that we shouldn't pray so generally necessarily that, that, we're, that we don't know if God answered those prayers. Big prayers, specific prayers. And people, when they hear us pray, may say we're out of our minds. (laughs) But God is in the business of answering requests so that even those with great faith might tell us that we're crazy. We can pray that way because we know that the power of prayer is not rooted in our earnestness, but it's rather in the God to whom we are speaking. And even when our faith is weak, God honors the prayers of his people and he answers them for his glory. But as we seek to apply this principle of prayer to our lives, also don't miss this big picture. Don't miss the picture of the way that God has completely undermined the authority of Herod and the power of this world through a small group of Christians praying and the power of an angel sent to Peter in the middle of the night. The juxtaposition of these two scenes, the fact that that Luke has sandwiched this scene right in the middle of these two pictures of, of Herod's power It screams off the page, never doubt the supernatural power of God's ways and his word, even when the powers of the world around us look so strong. So the narrative returns to Herod. Herod sends for Peter that next morning. He's ready to execute him. He's ready to exalt himself, only to have it reported that Peter is missing. And I love the way Luke's put it. There was no small disturbance among the soldiers, whatever that looked like. And when he finds out, Herod finds out that Peter is nowhere to be found, Herod satisfies this lust for blood that he had by killing the guards that, had, uh, that Peter had escaped um, from. And then Luke takes us to a different time and to a different place. And he shows us the same old Herod. And he shows us the way that God works in deliverance, but also the way that God works in judgment. So this is the third thing that we learned. There is judgment coming for all who rob God of his glory. There is judgment coming. And there's judgment coming for every single person, for all who rob God of his glory. The situation is described well here, and it's also described even in more detail in the writings of Josephus. Uh, the people of Tyre and Sidon, because of their need for food from Herod's district, are seeking to appease the anger of Herod, which makes me think more and more of Herod as some sort of tantrum-throwing two-year-old. That's what he looks like in all of these passages. He thinks he has power, but he's just, I don't know. And, And the people of Tyre and Sidon know exactly how to appease Herod. It's by stroking his ego. And so when he emerges one day in his best clothes and he delivers this speech, they cry out, the voice of a God and not of a man. And that's a phrase that Herod likes. You know, he likes being thought of as a a God. But God, 
obviously disapproves. And we're told that God struck him down, presumably with painful worms in his stomach that eventually killed him. And it all happened because he failed to give God glory. God says this in Isaiah 42, 8, I am the Lord, that is my name. My glory I give to no other, nor my praise to carved idols. And we might add, nor to earthly kings. God, as the creator and the sustainer of everyone and everything, is the only one who deserves glory and honor and praise in this world. All authority on earth is borrowed from the source of all authority, who is God. And Herod should have acted like Peter did when Cornelius bowed down before him back in chapter 10. Remember, Peter quickly said, stand up, for I also am a man. But instead, like the Pharisees of John 12, 43, Herod loved the praises of men more than the praises of God. We find the truth that whether they die in dramatic fashion like Herod or not, we're, we're reminded that everyone who opposes God's glory, everyone who does not rightly give him the honor and the glory that he alone deserves will face the righteous judgment of God. But until he comes on the last day to, to mete out that punishment, until then, now is the day of salvation. Now is the day to bow before King Jesus as the, as the only one who deserves praise and honor and glory. Salvation and forgiveness of sins begins when we see the glory of Christ and we see the ugliness of our sin. It comes when we repent of our sin, including the sin of stealing honor from God. And when we bow before Jesus as the only one deserving of praise. He alone has lived in perfection and holiness. And he alone was able to die and pay the penalty due to us for our sins. And he alone can forgive us and save us from eternal judgment. So he alone deserves glory. And when we've turned to Jesus for our salvation, we see more and more that he alone deserves that praise and that honor and glory. And we, we want to give him that. I think we might pause, and, and while we can look at Herod and point the finger, we might also pause and examine our own hearts to see where we are seeking the praise of others rather than giving glory to God. How are we seeking to make a name for ourselves and not seeking to make a name for God? We might even think about how we're bowing the knee to the Herods of this world. How are we allowing ourselves to give undue glory to the rulers of this world? We are to show respect to world leaders and to those that have been put in places of authority by God, but we don't bow before them. We don't put our, our trust in them or in any earthly government. Our hope is in God alone and he alone deserves our unwavering loyalty and allegiance. At the beginning of this chapter, we watched as Herod murdered James. And with the arrest of Peter, we, we wondered what, what would happen next. And when the power of the kingdom of this world looked great, God heard the prayers of his people. He rescued Peter. And in the end, God killed Herod. The story concludes with a simple statement in verse 24. But the word of God increased. 
and multiplied. That phrase tells us one final thing. Just briefly, this final thing is, there is no way on earth to stop the increase of the word or the spread of God's kingdom. There is no way, not one single way, that on earth to stop the increase of God's word and the spread of his kingdom. God's people, God's message of salvation, God's kingdom, they always emerge victorious. There is no Herod. There is no earthly ruler. There is no kingdom. There is no country. There is no government. There is no law that can stifle the increase of God's word or the spread of his kingdom. Of course, the the fullness of God's kingdom is still future. There will be defeats and setbacks. As I say that there's nothing that can stifle the increase of the word and the spread of God's kingdom, we also need to remember that victory for God's word and the increase of God's kingdom might not look like we expect it to. And it might not be as easy to spot externally. But our great hope is that no matter how bad things might get, God's word will continue to bring salvation to all people. God's word has not lost its power to do that. And God's kingdom will come in fullness when Christ returns. There's no way to stop the increase of God's word and the spread of his kingdom. In fact, that's one of the great arguments for the book of Acts. We're pushing towards Acts 28. And do you remember how Acts 28 ends? It ends with Peter under house arrest. But it says in Acts 2830, he lived there two whole years at his own expense and welcomed all who came to him, proclaiming the kingdom of God and teaching about the Lord Jesus Christ with all boldness and without hindrance. Nothing could stop the gospel going forward. And nothing can stop the increase of the word or the spread of God's kingdom. So we wait for the fullness of the kingdom to come when Christ returns. But until then, we We read Acts 12, and when things look dark in our lives, when things look dark maybe in our church, when they look dark in the world, and when we are tempted to be discouraged, when we're tempted to doubt, Acts 12 says to us, never doubt, never, never, never doubt the supernatural power of God's ways and God's word.